Okay, 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 okay. I got one. You guys went to Stokes, right? Yep. If you were a kid in New Jersey, you most likely spent a week there in sixth grade. Do you remember the ghost story they told us all? Mm-hmm. The kid on the bridge. First of all, we all had to go there in the winter because apparently it's good to camp in the harshest weather possible when you're a sixth grader from the suburbs. Well, we went, my class did, during the blizzard of 94. The place was absolutely buried in newly fallen snow. And it only got worse during our stay. It was so cold that our eyelashes would freeze. I didn't know your eyelashes could freeze. I don't think I've ever been that cold before or since. One night, we were sitting around in the girls' cabin with our flashlights when a counselor told us the following story. Many years ago, a family came to this camp in the summer to spend a week's vacation by the lake. They were a young couple who had a son and a daughter just about our age. One day, the little boy and girl were playing hide-and-seek with some other kids who were staying at the camp. That day, they were wearing matching blue and white baseball shirts, and the boy had on a red cap. The little girl counted to 30, and while she did, the kids scattered. Some hid under a canoe, some hid behind a neighboring tent, some hid in an old cabin, and the little boy, who really wanted to win, ran into the woods. Stoke State Forest is deep and dense, and to a child, it can look almost magical. The little boy wandered for a while before realizing that he no longer knew which was the way out. Unknowingly, he had wandered for miles, and soon the sun began to set. The other children had looked everywhere for him, thinking he just must have hidden really well and didn't want to come out and give himself up. They shouted that it wasn't funny anymore, but the silence in response to their pleas was deafening. Eventually, they told his parents and a search party formed. They looked for the little boy for hours until the darkness took over the camp. Armed with flashlights, the search continued. Hours turned into days, days turned into weeks, and still there was no sign of the little boy. Eventually, the searching stopped. The flyers were buried, the newspapers found another story, and the little boy was forgotten. Fifteen years later, another family was camping in the same spot and their children were playing hide-and-seek. Their young daughter was it, and when she ran to search, she saw one little boy running through the woods, and so the girl gave chase. The boy seemed to almost disappear and reappear like he could travel on the wind, but the little girl kept seeing his red baseball cap darting in and out of the trees. Eventually, she gave up and went to find the others. When she asked who the boy in the woods was, no one had an answer. Soon, she forgot about the boy and went about her night. That is, until after everyone had gone to bed, when she heard rustling. The little girl peeked out the window of her cabin and saw the back of a red baseball cap running around to the next set of windows, and she heard the same laughter as before. She followed him from window to window, but never got to see his face. When she finally opened the door slowly and carefully to get a better look, he had vanished. There was no trace of him. The little girl laughed, thinking that maybe he had a crush on her, and then she went back to sleep. The next morning, when they were all getting ready for the day, the little girl told her parents about the mischievous little boy, laughing about how today she was going to find him no matter what. 
her parents went pale. They asked her to describe the boy to them once more. She said he was short, probably about nine years old. He had dark hair and wore a blue and white baseball shirt, a red cap, and beat up sneakers. Her parents remembered the story of the lost little boy. They remembered his picture in the newspaper, and they ran from the tent telling anyone they could find about what their daughter saw. They said he must still be alive and looking for his family. The camp employees said that was impossible. Even if he had survived, he would be an adult at this point. Shaken, the family went about their stay. But that night, the little girl heard her friend running around the cabin again. And this time, she wasn't going to let him get away. She followed the sound of his footsteps until she came to the Rainbow Bridge. She began to run across it when she suddenly was hit with a warm current of air. While she was in it, she felt inexplicably sad and lost and scared. After she passed through, she ran as fast as she could to the other side of the bridge. After landing on solid ground, she looked over her shoulder to see the little boy standing on the bridge. He could go no further, and he looked so sad. You see, the boy had died out in those woods, alone and afraid. Eventually, he made his way back to the camp, and in terror of the unknown, he decided that he would never leave again. He was trapped for all eternity, just wanting to be found. And so, if you come to Stokes to camp, which you can only do in the wintertime now, check the snow around the cabins every morning. More often than not, when it is freshly fallen, you will see small footprints that belong to beat-up sneakers, and you might see a red baseball cap flash through the woods. If you cross Rainbow Bridge alone and suddenly feel warm, then you know he's with you, looking for another game. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And... We would be dead. ghosts are the worst. I know, child ghosts are the worst. Ooh. Where's our merch that says that? We've been promising oh, no. it for a real long time. Was it, is it kids ghosts are the worst? Or kids ghosts are the worst? I think I that's know. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> they are though. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Well, I have to confess, I enjoyed our time at Camp We Would Be Dead so much this week. Yeah. That I had to like, keep the vibes going. All right. I just wanted to like keep riding that wave, which is why I decided to cover the Lake Bodum murders this week. And doing my summer camp massacre research for a TikTok I made a few weeks ago, you can follow me on TikTok if you want to see those. They're fun. I was surprised to learn that while summer camp murders aren't exactly common, they also aren't super uncommon. And there are more than a few terrifying events that took place within the confines of an idyllic summer camp. So I guess if you're anti-camping this week, we're really here to make you look smart. Great. Are you anti-camping? I am. You are? Okay, well, this is, you're going to be like, I told you. I told all of you. Told no camping. All of you. <laughs> so Mine's gonna, just like fear-based for snakes. That's it. I can go camping in the winter. That'd be fine. But now I don't want to with this kid ghost running around. Kid ghost running around. It's, well, only if you go to Stokes 
Which a yeah. lot of New Jersey kids have. I know. That's where my kids went. I should ask them about this They might story. know this story. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious if other people were told it or not. Um, and also, if you went to Stokes, it is one of the camps used as Camp Crystal Lake in Friday the 13th. So if you need to conjure that image, if you didn't go there, go ahead. Yeah. That's what it looks like. <laughs> um, also, like, they told us that as soon as we got there and have since not told kids that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I tell people that all the time, and they're shocked. Yeah. I'm like, no. Your counselors didn't tell you? I have to ask my children this now. Ask them if they know, because yeah. it is. <laughs> anyway. Oh, also the ghost story I just told, or rather a version of it, is legitimately a story I was told when I went to Stokes. I admittedly filled out details and made it nice and glossy for our monologue, because when I heard it first, I was 12, and it's become a little fuzzy with age. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember it terrifying me. Our counselors would also wait until we all went to bed and then walk around the cabin, leaving footprints in the snow. Oh, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. In the morning, we would all, like, walk out and fucking lose our minds. <laughs> yeah. I called my mom so fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to get me out of here. But the thing is, like, I am honest in my opening monologue. I did, I did go there during the blizzard of 94. Right. And so <laughs> I guess there's a little bit of me in that one. <laughs> uh, and I never forgot the story. It really stuck with me hard. It's creepy, too. Like, yeah. that image is pretty creepy. So, Fiends, if you're a Jersey kid and you went to Stokes, and also, Leslie, obviously ask your kids, please tell me if you know this story. I am so interested to hear if other people know it. And if it's a different version or I changed a bunch of details, remember that I totally admit that I took artistic license. Mm -hmm. So, sorry. Um, also, I know that, like, the Rainbow Bridge is an animal grief and loss metaphor, but it wasn't back then. And there actually is a bridge called the Rainbow Bridge at Stokes. You can still walk over it if you want to go there and see if you feel a little warm for a minute. Ooh. Which we all, of course, were like, I felt it, I felt it. Of course. <laughs> Every kid was like, it's here. <laughs> Story has like a lot of like sense things with where when you're a kid. Of course. You, you like see it everywhere. That story also reminds me of the episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that has the little boy ghost who only says, I'm cold. Oh. <sighs> I was okay forgetting that story. <laughs> <laughs> that one did me in when I was a kid. Yep. It, it gave me nightmares. It scared me so hard. I just hear that little, I'm cold voice. Okay. And that's exactly how he said I it. Know. It's burned into my brain. <laughs> oh my God. I forgot all about it. My life was good. <laughs> <laughs> and now you have to remember that that existed. Ugh. Um, but yeah, it was real scary when I was a kid. But sadly, I am no longer a kid. And sometimes I'm just so tired being old like this. It's, yeah. it's hard to even raise my little fingers to the keyboard to type. They're so frail. But you know what I read? What? I read that a healthy dose of pure and unfiltered validation can restore youthful energy faster than anything else on the planet. Oh, wow. Is that expensive? No, it's free. And it's wow. also a great alternative to cocaine if you're sick of the nosebleeds and unchecked rage. You know, I, I was wondering... I figured you were sick of the nosebleeds and yeah. unchecked rage. <laughs> or so I've been told, you know. So if you want to keep the pep in our step and our fingers on the keyboard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, you can support us on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you get an extra monthly mini-sode, special gifts, 
discounts in our merch store, access to our patrons-only podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, which took a little break for the summer because we have been insanely busy. But we do have big plans for its comeback. Leslie is gonna make me watch Twilight. I sure am. So. Everyone's very excited. I know. It's gonna be so much. It's trending on Netflix right now, so. Oh, man. Here we go. We gotta get in there. (laughs) You have to let me have drinks. Oh, oh, 100%. We're going to get sushi. Yeah. Or noodles. I'm also really excited about it because I, in college, watched a lot of the extras, like the bonus. So you're full of facts? I have so many facts. (laughs) So the patrons are going to get a 30-minute horror movie and then then extra content. (laughs) And another extra where just Leslie educates me about Twilight. (laughs) It'll probably be like little quick, like, quips, like, throughout it. I'll be like, and then this person was in this scene. Oh, my God. Well, you know what? also, I hate it, but I love it so much. It's going to be real fun. I have only seen the first, like, half an hour of the first one. And when she walks into his bedroom and he's, like, listening to classical music, he's like, it's Debussy. I was like, done, check, please. Can't. I'm done. I couldn't watch it after that. So He's, like, 109 years old. Like, yes, he is. You're going to get so much of this. That's the kind of music he likes. (laughs) Okay. You'll also, as a patron, get an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. And if all of that is a little much for you, you can always just share anything on our social media to your social media, post your favorite episode, let everyone know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell strangers you see at the gas station. I bet they like podcasts, and you won't seem weird at all. Then, your friends and the strangers you scared at the gas station can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. Virtually, because gas station strangers can't come to my house or anything. <laughs> Perfect. What are their names? To, I know. I'm trying to come up with their names. I was thinking like like Carl and, and it's like, is it Bebe? Like, what's one of those names? The Bebe? B, the BBs? Like, I don't know. I'm oh, trying to come no. Up. Carl for sure. That's a good one. Carl, Carl and Sue. Did we do a Sue already? Was she the welcome setter woman? That was Barb. That was Barb. Okay, no, I don't think we have a Sue. Carl and Sue. Carl and Sue. Yeah. They um, might have a bunch of people tied up in the back of their truck. They might just be friendly people who are talking to you. We don't know. Yeah. Like Carl calls her Susie, but like other people call her Sue. That, that tracks. I yeah. like it. A lot of flannel. Yeah. Maybe a hat. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, keep an eye out for our new artwork. This little branding makeover has been really fun, and I can't wait to see where it takes mm-hmm. us. We have some new stickers coming soon. Yes, and hopefully um, – when you see our new artwork, the T-shirts Leslie and I are wearing will hopefully become something that is available to you. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who saw them really liked them. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll be able to get them for you. Um, so, yeah, I think that's all I have. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Yeah, um, no. God damn it. Why are you going to play with me like that? I was like, oh, it's the week. <laughs> it's not. It's not the week. It's not the week. <laughs> it's never the week. No. All right. Sometimes it's the week gonna be yeah you're gonna have like a big bomb to drop at some point in time it's coming all right wouldn't that be nice yeah (laughs) i mean sure anyway on with the show before we begin please note that this week's story takes place in finland and i don't know if you know this or not but i am not finnish though i kind of wish i was they do a lot of things right over there yeah. But please forgive me if I mispronounce anything. And feel free to send me a friendly message with the correct pronunciation so I can learn from my mistakes and issue a correction if we need to. We are always open to hearing how it's supposed to be. 
On June 5, 1960, Finland's Lake Bodum sat in its perpetual glimmering glory. You see, Finland's global positioning gives it rather extreme seasons, with days of near-constant daylight in the summer and near-constant darkness in the winter. Not like a good place for you to be if you have seasonal depression. Hmm. And one of those places where, like, midsummer is a thing, because that's the yeah. day that's light almost 22 hours. Oh, that was such a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Movies a lot. Um, and on this particular day, June 5th, there would have been 18 solid hours of daylight, with the sun rising at 4.04 a.m. and setting at 10.34 p.m. Okay. Lake Bodum is a popular spot for camping, fishing, swimming, birding, and all sorts of other warm weather activities. So in the summertime, it is not unusual for people to get a very, very early start to their days. Think about your parents on, like, a Disney vacation. You were going to take advantage of every available minute in the park if it killed you. And if it started at 4 a.m., you can bet your life you would have been there at 4 a.m. For sure. You paid a lot of money mm-hmm. to be this there. This is your fucking vacation. Yeah. You're going to vacation every minute. Yeah. <laughs> Lake Bodum is located in the adorably named city of Espoo. Oh, I know. Espoo. <laughs> need to live somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> you need to live in Iceland with all the little gnome houses. Oh, God. They'd be like my perfect size. <laughs> they would. Oh, you're like a little gnome. Get in there. <laughs> and I don't think they're gnomes. They're, um, what were they called? Huldefolk. Huldefolk. Sorry, yeah. I don't want to make a mistake. On people's mythology. Anyway, Espoo is just a stone's throw away from the capital and most populated city in Finland, Helsinki. Espoo is the second most populated. So you can imagine how crowded Lake Bodum could be in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Activities at Lake Bodum began to trickle to life quite early on the morning of June 5th, 1960. A group of young boys were out at first light wa- bird watching. Fisher folks crept onto the shores at 2 and 3 a.m. Wow. Yeah, this was like before. So think about people who go fishing in normal daylight hours where they're like, oh, I'll get started at 5 a.m. So it's before, like, the light hits, before people get started. This is just, like, a weird version of that. So, like, 2 a.m. would have been two hours before sunrise. And leisurely swimming began long before noon. The shores of Lake Bodum were dotted with tents, and lots of them would contain teenagers from the neighboring villages looking for a little summer freedom. Often they would sneak alcohol and indulge in a little romance, and people generally didn't bother them. It was a very, like, live and let live kind of situation. We're going to talk about 1960 in a little bit, too, I'm sure. That had some effect there. Yeah. It seems extremely pleasant, if you ask me. At approximately 11 o'clock that morning, a carpenter named Esko Johansson, or it's probably Johansson, who is also referred to as Ristro Siren in most sources in English for one reason or another. I don't know why they get his name wrong, but, like, the Finnish sources say his name is Esko Johansson. Um... <laughs> He decided to take his young son out for a swim. The pair hit the water and were paddling around blissfully taking in the scenery when they noticed something strange. One of the tents that was off on its own, away from immediate neighbors, seemed to have been trampled. The sight was concerning to say the least, so Esko decided to take a closer look, leaving his son to wait on the shoreline. When he got closer, he noticed that the tent fabric was saturated in blood, and several bodies lay in its wreckage in a pile. Esco then ran back to his son, grabbed him by the hand, located the nearest phone, and called the damn cops. Yes. I know. Way to go. His phone call came in at 11.15. And just as Esco had run off from the scene, another man approached, which, and 
he had also like seen the flattened tent and was like, I wonder what that is. He came in from the other side too. So it's like a, almost like a farce where he's like leaving and the other guy's coming. Oh. Mm-hmm. This man's name is Sigurd Volasma, I think that's right, who just did the exact same thing that Esco did. He saw it and then ran away in the other direction to the phone in the opposite direction and called the damn cops. Oh, funny. So within like a few minutes of the, each other, the cops had two f- calls from different phones at the same camp reporting this incident. Okay. Not knowing what they exactly were going to encounter, police and emergency services arrived on the scene to discover that there were four bodies located in the bloody wreckage, and one of them was still breathing. It appeared that an assailant had come to the scene in the scarce few hours of darkness and unleashed a shocking river of violence. The tent lines had been cut. So this is a tent that is um, held up with poles. So they would put up two poles. I think it's actually four poles in total. And use line to tie, and then they would hang the tent over the lines. So if you cut these lines, the tent just falls straight down on your head. Right. And, and this is a very similar tent to the, um, oh, what is it called? Tiatlov Pass. So if you remember the tent, but like the avalanche just flattened. It's almost the exact same kind of tent. Okay. It appeared that the assailant had come to the scene, as I said, and cut the lines to the tent. And the two campers that were in it, one male and one female, had been beaten and stabbed to death through the tent's canvas. So the tent fell on top of them, and the killer just went right through the tent. Hmm. That is the most frightening image in the world for me. I'll like, I'll never sleep in a tent again. Imagine the tent falling down on your head in the middle of the night. That's what wakes you up. You're covered in like heavy tent canvas, like weatherproof canvas. And then someone just starts beating you and stabbing you through the fabric. You're trapped like a fish in a net. Wow. Yeah, there's nothing you can do at that point. You can't fight back. Authorities said it looked as though the attacker had used a knife and a large rock. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. A third body, a young female, lay on top of the tent canvas in the fetal position, naked from the waist down. She had been brutally stabbed and beaten beyond recognition. On the edge of the tent, also on top of the canvas, lying face down and missing his shoes, was the lone survivor, and he was barely breathing. The survivor was a teenage boy who had clearly suffered blunt force trauma to his face, which resulted in a broken jaw and a gash on his cheek so large and deep that medical staff reported being able to see his teeth clear through it. Ooh. Yeah. The boy had also suffered a blow to the back of the head, which had um, been so strong that clear cerebral spinal fluid was leaking through his nostril. Oh, gosh. Which happens to people who let their head injuries go untreated sometimes, and they think it's not. Yeah. I will never recover from this information. Oh, you didn't know that? No, I will never snot again. Nope. Well, that's after, it's like a head injury. Yeah, but there are so many weird stories. Maybe maybe we'll record, or I'll talk about the one at another time, Mm -hmm. where, like, it was a head injury that the person, like, sustained and then didn't think about. They were like, oh, I'm better, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. My allergies are just really bad for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And yeah. it wasn't their allergies. It was their spinal fluid leaking out of their nose. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, I remember learning that in school. I always think about that when like, <sighs> <laughs> you just have to get it checked out. Yeah, so fair warning. If you're in a severe car crash or fall off a building and you notice that all of a sudden your allergies are real bad, especially when you lean your head to one side, it might be worth visiting a doctor. And just in case, this might be you. Here are the signs to look for. This, like, haunted my dreams. (laughs) (laughs) 
So if you're if the fluid coming out of your nose is only one nostril or one ear, also like you should never just have fluid leaking out of your ear. Right. That's a bad sign. Um, allergies tend to be like both your nose holes or both your ears. If the leakage leakage lasts for a long time or um or the cold effects do, they shouldn't last for like several years. <laughs> Tilting your head forward or straining makes the drainage worse. Um, the drainage starts after a head trauma or brain surgery or like any kind of spinal surgery. The drainage doesn't change with the seasons or location. The volume of the drainage is more than you would expect from cold or allergies. Or if you wake up to find your shirt or pillowcase like soaked in it. You have accompanying headaches or changes in vision or hearing. A classic symptom is a headache that improves when you lay down. While these symptoms could come from other things, you should definitely go to the doctor if you have mm -hmm. any of them. Also, cerebral spinal fluid has a metallic taste, unlike snot, which yeah. is usually just kind of salty. So if your snot tastes like pennies, go to the doctor. Yes. Thank you for listening to my public service announcement. <laughs> I, like, couldn't handle that. Oh. What if, my, what if my snot means I'm dying? I'll just taste it and see where you're so at. So the moral of the story is always taste. taste your snot. Yeah. Like, those who eat their burgers are right. That's like a That's, survival instinct. Absolutely. Eat your boogers. Mm hmm Good. I'm glad we covered this. Yeah. <laughs> Don't waste the tissue. Just lick Just it like right lick off. It. <laughs> if it tastes like a penny, you're fucked. But if not, keep on cruising. Yeah. Now, <laughs> no, if it tastes like a penny, you just saved your life. I suppose you're right. You do go see a doctor. Yeah. You have a brain injury. Your penny snot is going to try to kill you. And if it tastes salty, then stay away from me. Wear your mask. <laughs> Wear your mask. There you go. Get on out of here. <laughs> get on out. Go on, get. <laughs> get. <laughs> okay, that was my diversion this week. Now, what makes this case especially curious is not that a member of the party survived. That happens sometimes. It's his response to the police when they asked what happened. Police learned that the survivor's name was Nils Gustafsson and that he was 18 years old. They also learned that the other victims were his girlfriend, Myla Irmele Bjorklund, and his friend, 15-year-old Anya Tulikimaki. It's a real fun name to say. And 18-year-old Seppo Antera Boisman. He said that they had all gone on the camping trip together. They swam, fished, and consumed some alcohol. And beyond that, he had absolutely no memory of what happened. Nils never regained this memory either. And whether this episodic amnesia can be attributed to trauma or head injury is still up for debate. That is, if you even believe he has it. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Right. On top of all that, the police determined that the killings occurred between the hours of 4 and 6 a.m., which, in that place and time, would have been daylight in the middle of a busy resort. How did no one hear or see the killings or the killer? No one else had been discovered near the crime scene with incriminating evidence, and if someone had been staggering around covered in blood, they would have easily been spotted by dozens of people. Even if the killer had just run blindly into the woods, they were not desolate woods. So how did these three teenagers come to be murdered in a manner most foul, right under the noses of thousands of vacationing tourists? Well, the answer might be stranger than you think, if there even is an answer, which formally, as of right now, there is not. Mm. So before we dig into the crime scene some more and lay out the suspects, because this is an unsolved case, so we only have suspects, Let's talk a little bit about the lead-up to it. It was June 5th, 1960. Leslie, why don't you set us up in this time period? Tell us, tell us about the 60s. Yeah, so um, I stuck with, because we've done a lot of 60s episodes, so this time I decided just to 
stick with 1960. Great, that's the year we're in. That's the year. So The Twist by Chubby Checker was released. Fun. Yeah. Did you know that Chubby Checker's real name is Ernest Evans? I didn't. Yeah, now you do. Now I do. Having standard showtimes for films was not common until 1960. So like at a movie theater, it would just, uh, previously films were just played on a loop and you could just go in whenever. So you could buy a ticket to go see a show, which whatever movie and you could be like in the middle of it and then you would just like watch the end and then get through and start it over that's again that's a terrible way to watch a movie i know they don't would just do that start it. i know Ugh. so they um so this was the first time that they started with actual show times and uh psycho was one of the first films to have like a set viewing time Ooh, psycho yeah. scary uh joanne woodward received one of the first stars on the hollywood walk of fame okay joanne yeah so do you know her you know? Yeah, we're, okay. we're good friends. Good. Okay, so Joanne Woodward is married to, was, well, she is the widow of Paul Newman. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yep. We hung out a lot. Yep. Um, but yeah, she was, uh, she was very interesting. Cool. Uh, the term paparazzi originated with Italian director Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Mm-hmm. One of the minor characters in the film was a photographer named Paparazzo. Oh. And Fellini took paparazzo's name from the Italian word for noisy mosquito. <laughs> this relates back to our Britney Spears episode. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's great. You know what's really funny is when we were doing the Britney Spears episode, I it was one of those things where I had to I had to write paparazzi and paparazzo so many times mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, I wonder where they got that from. And, you and then that I up? never did. But then, no, then this was like the fact that came in from my 1960. And I, was I like, love oh, that. Wow. All right, great. The big book to read was To Kill a Mockingbird. The big movie to Still watch. Big. Yeah. The big movie to watch in theaters was Psycho, as we said before. Oh, yeah. For kids, Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss was published. And the top games and toys to be played were The Game of Life, <gasps> Etch-A-Sketch, Barbie, Chatty Cathy. <laughs> what a fun name. Uh, Mattel's lie detector game. Mr. Machine, Play-Doh Fun Factory. I love, I always love looking at the toys that were from like the 60s and 70s because there's they're always the toys that we played with, like so especially millennials. still, I don't remember it exactly. I'll find it and post it somewhere. He still will routinely sing the Mr. Machine jingle. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the whole thing off the top of my head right now, but he does, and he has my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yep. Some of the top songs in 1960 include Teen Angel by Mark Dining. Oh, good one. Stuck on You by Elvis Presley. He had, like, a lot of hits this year. That was, like, he was a guy. He's pretty popular. Yeah. 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 He was somebody. <laughs> Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. By Brian Hyland. Oh, I love that song. <laughs> That's a fun one. <laughs> Save the Last Dance for Me by The Drifters. Georgia on My Mind by Ray Charles. And Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis Presley. Oh, it's a good time for a sweeping ballad. I know. And because the Olympics are going on right Ooh. now, Wilma Rudolph was a American sprinter who had polio as an infant oh. and was unable to walk properly until she was 11. Interesting. For several years, her family had to massage her legs four times a day, and she had to wear a metal brace. Oof. And in 1954, she won the Olympic bronze medal in the 200-meter dash. And then in 1960, she became the first American woman to win three gold medals in a single Olympic Games and these were also in the 100 and 200 meter dash and the 4 by 100 meter relay. 
I'm going to massage my kids' legs more. I know. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah. What an inspiring time. I know. Also, (laughs) Psycho was like the direct cause of people not taking baths any longer. I know so many people that, or like, or taking, sorry, not taking showers. People would take baths. There was like a rise on like people sitting in tubs. I remember I had. That's so funny. I think it's my mom or my aunt said that. They were like, would not take a shower for the longest time. I would only take a bath with the curtain open so that I could see the whole bathroom because people were terrified of not being able to see the bathroom and someone attacking them. That's so funny. Yeah, it was like a big deal then. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Bad time for showers. Get out of here, showers. <laughs> Shower head sales tanked. <laughs> <laughs> so on June 1st, young couples Seppo Boisman on Anyamaki and Nils Gustafsson and Myla Bjorklund left for a camping trip to Finland's popular Lake Bodum. The four were good friends who frequently spent time together and had been looking forward to this break from being under, the, under their parents' roofs. They were all from Vanta, a heavily populated city right next to Helsinki and Espoo. I'm going to say it like that every time just 16 miles east of Lake Bodum. As city kids, I imagine this trip was a welcome, like, diversion into the country. Uh, The quartet traveled lightly, planning to sleep in a single canvas tent secured with a few poles. They brought a few articles of clothing, bathing suits, watches, cigarettes, some alcohol and fishing equipment, and Myla brought a journal. According to Myla's journal, and I think her name is pronounced Myla, but there are a couple sources that say Mela. If it's Mela, I'm sorry. The um, pronounce me told me it was the other one. All right. (laughs) So there you go. Anyway, her journal, which is covered in doodles of musical notes, treble clefs, staff lines, and stars of David, and a collection of Finnish words that all loosely translate to the word song. Oh. It's real cute. It says that as of 2 a.m. on the 5th, Nils and Seppo had gotten drunk and woken up at 2 a.m. to go fishing. But the exact words are... Translated a little rough, but they are, quote, fifth day camping at Lake Bodum. Seppi and Nisa were drunk. Up at 2 a.m., Seppi was fishing, end quote. And that's all we know. Great. Nils does not remember when he was fishing, but the rest seemed to check out with him. And there are reports later on that people saw two men fishing near their campsite at around 2, 3 a.m. So that correlates with other people. The killer had also taken several items, which detectives found puzzling, including the keys to the victim's motorcycles, but not the actual motorcycles, Mm. which to me says, like, you can't leave. Right. Nils Gustafson's shoes were partially, were hidden uh, approximately 500 meters away from the murder site, too. As I mentioned, that he, he didn't have any shoes on when they found him. They were just, like, walked 500 meters away into the woods. The killer had also made off with several watches, packs of cigarettes, and Seppo's knife. There are a few recounts of this story that say that the other boys' shoes were also in the woods, but it's not in every retelling. Also, it doesn't really make a huge difference, but it's out there in case you read that version of it. And then there is the matter of all of the crazy holes in this investigation. The police, first of all, didn't block off the crime scene. Oh, okay. And this is 1960. We're not in, like, Bonnie and Clyde times where people were taking souvenirs. These should have known better, these police should have, at least— nor did they record anything they saw. So they didn't write through, like, go through the scene and write down stuff. They just took a little walk. Okay. They also allowed a crowd of officers and onlookers to trample the site almost immediately. So any evidence that could have been present at the time of the discovery could have easily been destroyed. Mm-hmm. This mistake was made even worse when soldiers were called in to assist 
was looking for the missing items. And so then a whole troop of soldiers also tramples straight through this crime scene on the way to looking for, like, motorcycle keys and a knife. Mm, This reminds me of Amanda Knox. Yeah, absolutely. And that, man, those people really should have known better. Mm -hmm. But this stuff still happens. And, And just think about the fact that any possible delicate evidence, like, say, there were footprints or a blood trail leading to where this killer went, there's no way it could have survived all those people. The keys and bikes, the keys to the bikes, sorry, were also never found. But, like, there's a lake. Hmm. You might never find a set of keys in a lake, no matter how many divers you have. Right. Over 4,000 people were questioned regarding this case, which is, like, astronomical for the place and time. And it it clearly made national news in Finland. During this questioning, authorities discovered that the group of boys birdwatching that I mentioned in the very beginning had also reported seeing the tent collapsed. And they said that they saw a man, a tall man with long blonde hair, walking away from it at approximately 6 a.m. Ooh, the tall man. The tall man. The tall blonde man. Rut row. After Nils had recovered from his injuries, he agreed to go under hypnosis to try and recover his recount of the incident. Okay, so before I get into this, there is reason to scratch your head around this whole situation because amnesia that results from a brain injury cannot, those events cannot be recovered through hypnosis. They're right. gone because mm-hmm. that part of your brain, the connections it's are not damaged, working. Yeah. And that's, you can recover events that you blocked out because of trauma under mm-hmm. hypnosis. If, I mean, some people don't believe in that, but I think you can. And Perhaps his amnesia was just because the event was so traumatic, but there are some people that doubt this whole next part because they say, well, if you had a head injury and that's why you couldn't remember anything, you could never have recovered this information. Mm -hmm. So while under hypnosis, Nil describes being the first one who was attacked. He says he was hit over the head after the tent collapsed, and then he was able to eventually pull himself out of the wreckage. But he claimed that the killer thought he was dead, because he was so still and his injuries were so severe. So he just looked dead and I guess was unconscious for a time. Um, And that was the only reason he survived. Nils described the killer as a tall blonde man wearing black and in some accounts he says he has evil red eyes. Now, okay, the eye thing could have been a head injury-induced hallucination or an exaggerated memory or something that newspapers thought would be fun to add. Mm -hmm. But it is out there several times, so again, I'm going to give you all the information. Nils even worked with the authorities to form a composite sketch of the killer while he was under hypnosis. And remember this, because it comes back in a real creepy way later on. The contents of the tent and most of the tent's materials itself had been completely saturated in blood. There was like the tent canvas, a leather jacket that somebody had propped up their head with to use as a pillow, and like a couple other, like a blanket or something. Not not a lot of stuff, but everything was soaked. Um, And the crime was extremely brutal and bloody just by nature. And there are some reports that say uh, one of the victims died from exsanguination. So that's like a person's, half of a person's blood volume in okay. that tent. So it's it's gross. Autopsy revealed that Myla Bjorklund's murder had been by far the most savage. She had been stabbed 15 times in the neck and face, bludgeoned, and had defensive wounds on her arms. She was almost naked from the waist down, with her trousers pulled off one leg entirely and halfway down the other. Myla also had been stabbed several times post-mortem. 
Now, this suggests that she was the intended victim of this attack and the others were an afterthought because her killing had seemed to have so much intention behind it. And post-mortem stab wounds are almost always like a, a rage killing right. of some kind. Now, is that Neil's girlfriend? Yes. Okay. All the victims suffered broken jaws and head injuries. Seppo's ultimate cause of death is listed as blood inhalation, which is pretty ghastly. Yeah. Suffocating on your own blood oh, has yeah. to be one of the most twisted ways to die. Mm-hmm. So basically, he drowned in blood. Right. <gasps> That's horrible. Isn't that horrible? I guess that, that would be like similar to like choking on like your own vomit yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it does say suffocated, not like his lungs filled with blood. It says like he he like inhaled it. Mm. So back in the category of extremely weird and hard to explain evidence, the pe- police also recovered a pillowcase rolled up and secured with rubber bands on both ends. So it's like Tootsie Roll shaped. Yeah. It had been splashed with blood and semen from two different sources. The men responsible for this vile donation were never discovered, though both Seppo and Nils were ruled out through blood tests. Some speculate that the pillowcase was left by the previous occupants of the campsite, which begs the question, what in the holy fuck were they doing? Hmm. Beating each other with pillowcases and then, like, getting real excited about it? Uh, probably. Maybe. It's a time. I mean, it was. Camping at Lake Bodum was a lot. <laughs> the murder weapons, by the way, were never recovered. And this pillowcase, like, they tossed this evidence out. They were like, this is nothing. And in the 60s, the only way for you to, like, test semen was was blood tests. It was, like, the yeah. same kind of thing. And a lot of people argue that, like, had they kept that, later testing might have proved much more conclusive. They might have been able yeah, to find absolutely. a match to that. But they didn't. They chose to get rid of it. They were like, that's from previous campers. Bye, 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 bye. Oh, ugh. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, real, like, shoddy work okay. in this one. Immediately after the murders, a few suspects were rounded up. The first was a local worker named Polly Luoma. He had recently left town, but police were able to track him down in nearby Otanaimi. Since Loma was verifiably in another place at the time of the murders, he was quickly ruled out. I don't even know why they suspected this guy. They were like, probably was him. Yeah. There's no reasons anywhere. They just needed somebody, and they're like, he works around here. He probably killed some people. Yeah, that's enough. Checks out, right? Good. Sometimes it does check out, Holly. Sometimes it does. It didn't in this case. Yeah. Locals, however, immediately suspected a local man named Carl Valdemar Gjallström. See, Carl. Carl, I know. <laughs> and I think it, it looks to me like it's pronounced Gjallström. It might be like Eelström. The G might be silent. I didn't look that one up. I'm sorry. Uh, but everybody in town called him the kiosk man. Hmm. Carl was one cranky customer. He ran a local kiosk, so like almost like a bodega. They just like sell like little supplies and food items and stuff. Um, and was known for his intense hatred of campers, which is interesting considering they essentially paid his bills. Right. Carl was well known for fist fighting tourists, cutting down tents, and throwing rocks at children. <laughs> He's a fun guy. See, that checks out. We live in a tourist town. And, we, like, how many I mean, how many people hate the tourists and a they lot. literally pay our bills? I know. That always make, that always baffles me. I'm like, everyone's like, shoobies, go home. I'm like, what? You're like, then, you, then you, you can't die. survive. Yeah, you won't be able to survive here. Yeah. Remember the winter when you're poor? <laughs> Do you want that forever? Oh, my God. I don't get that either. <laughs> I get getting to Labor Day and being like, ooh, that was long, and I did a lot of work, yeah. and I'm ready to relax, but I don't get trying to chase them out of town. Yeah. Just Dang. do what this guy does. Just throw rocks throw at Throw rocks them. at children. 
Fist fight tourists. Cut down their tents. Yeah. It's fine. But take their money. Yeah, take their money. <laughs> and then there's the little matter of the drunken conversation with a neighbor wherein Carl confessed to the Lake Bodum murders. Oh. Police pursued this by questioning Carl's wife, who told them he was fast asleep in his bed at the time of the murders, so it absolutely could not have been him. Was her name Sue? No, but what if it was? That would have been amazing. It would have been really good. But again, this is Carl's wife. So we can take that alibi with a grain of salt. And Carl wasn't through being extremely shady and terrifying, by the way. Mm -hmm. He had also been seen filling a well in his front yard only days after the murders. Many people believe that that's where he might have hidden the murder weapons and other missing items and then just like filled it all in. Oh. Mm-hmm. The police did search his property, though, and discovered no evidence. Though they wouldn't have if it all had been buried in a well, would they? Right. wonder if they can ask the child that's down in the well. Oh, no. He's cold. Stop. <laughs> you did ask for that. I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> I take it back. And then there is perhaps the most damning evidence in Carl's favor. In 1969, he drowned himself in Lake Bodum. Oh. Mm-hmm. And later, upon her deathbed, his wife took back her original story backing up his whereabouts. She claimed to have been scared of him and that he had threatened to kill her if she told the police that he had not actually been home on the night of the murders. Oh, Sue. Sue, withholding (laughs) evidence. Come on, Sue. (laughs) This feels a little bit like the cops bungled that one. Yeah. But there truly is no hard evidence that could have held up in a court of law. Okay. Being a shady asshole does not a murderer make. Right. Is there going to be, like, a twist here? Are we, like, are you going to throw us completely off Carl soon? No, this is okay. it. Wait, just wait. Okay. There's an even more ridiculous person. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> but if shady, being a shading asshole um, did mean that you got to go to jail, <laughs> I know a few people that would go directly to jail without passing go or collecting $200. Yes. So next, we have the almost cartoonish villain, Hans Asman. Or Assman. It's spelled Assman. <laughs> You know that it's not pronounced that, though. (laughs) Asman, Asman. It's funny. Go ahead and laugh. (laughs) First, he just sounds like a Simpsons character to me. Yes. First, Hans is a former Nazi and alleged KGB spy. Oh, then we're good. That's two strikes right there for Assman. It is rumored that he was a guard at Auschwitz and had a cruel and sadistic sensibility, which he would. Mm-hmm. Hans checked into uh, the Helsinki Surgical Hospital on June 6th, the day after the murders. He was filthy with black, dirt-caked fingernails and covered in, quote, red stains. This distinction and wording is very important. The paperwork says red stains. Mm. The paperwork that the police use. Hospital staff said that Hans was acting very nervous and aggressive, and when questioned about his condition, he went so far as to just fake being unconscious. They'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you? And he'd be like, oh, I'm passed out. Weird. Other than a very brief questioning, the police did not pursue Hans at all. All articles refer to him as ass man, by the way, and I just can't. I can't do it because I only picture a supervillain made entirely of butts. Nice. Now you all have that gift as well. Thank you, Holly. Mm-hmm. Police claimed that they did not need to investigate Hans further because his alibi was so solid, though it was never revealed to the public what exactly that alibi was. Oh. Some say he claimed to have been in Germany, and then I guess he just 
wandered over to Finland all disoriented to go to the hospital for looking weird. Yeah. Airtight, fellas. You were right to let that one go. Mm-hmm. Now, because of his supposedly excellent alibi, police also never took his stained clothing in for examination, despite the doctor's insistence that it was definitely blood. Wow. Uh-huh. His documents say, his police documents say red stains, but the doctors, who I feel like know what blood looks like, were like, no, that, that guy's covered in blood. That's blood all over his clothes, covered in blood. The cops were like, mm, those red stains are curious. Well, they weren't even curious. No. They were just like, mm, probably spilled some Kool-Aid. Man, like, was something, I want to know what was going on in the police department. Like, were they just doing something else that they just didn't have time for this? <laughs> well, if this guy was a KGB guy, yeah. they would never, ever, ever investigate him. Oh, that's true. Okay. And this isn't the only suspicious behavior on Hans's part. After a description of the killer was released to the media, remember the little boys and Nils both claimed that a man with long blonde hair, a tall man with long blonde hair, was responsible. Hans went right ahead and cut off all of his long blonde hair. Mm. Dr. Jorma Paolo, who had been one of the doctors to initially examine Hans, went on to write three books about him and his connection to the murders. And it's pretty widely assumed that Hans was dismissed because of his deep and dark political connections, which is pretty convincing of, like, an ex-Nazi and supposed KGB member. He would have more than a few very scary connections mm -hmm. that I assume nobody would want to mess with. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the KGB, for anybody who is unfamiliar, was the main security agency for the Soviet Union from March 13th, 1954 until December 3rd of 1991. And they did some real terrifying stuff under the umbrella of politically charged invincibility. Yeah, and then... During the 60s, that was, like, a big thing. We were all scared of, like, right, yeah. the Soviets. Yes, yeah. indeed. Mm -hmm. Then there is the other matter of the sketch, an artist based on Nils's description of the attacker. The face in this picture is super strange. I will post a picture. I would almost call it ghoulish. Mm. Photos of the funeral service. I mean, oh, God, he looks like a Lon Chaney character, that, like, exaggerated, like, dark eyes and, like, weird vampiric face. It's very scary. Okay. So photos of the funeral service for all of the victims of the Lake Bodum massacre were published in all of the local newspapers. And they all featured a shot of the enormous crowd. And right there in the middle of this crowd is the exact ghoulish face that Nils helped <laughs> a sketch artist mock up. Oh, I just looked at a picture. <laughs> I told you. Ooh, I wish I did not do that. <laughs> Isn't it Ooh. awful? Ooh. It's so scary. Guys, don't worry. You will have a picture by the time this comes out, but it oh, is God. unsettling. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Nope. That, I feel gross. <laughs> so many people also believe that this photo looks exactly like Han's ass man. Whether or not it was, it seems more than likely to a large portion of the internet that the guy in the funeral photo is definitely the killer. Mm-hmm. His, like, his photo is also just horribly terrifying. Uh-huh. Because it is black and white, and it's dark, and so all the features are extra dark. And also, the funeral picture Ooh. is people, like, looking ahead and down, and he's just looking up into the abyss. It's I didn't like see that one. I just saw a headshot, <laughs> and I am done for the day. <laughs> It's bad. Ooh. He's like the only face that is like full face. Every other face is like looking down at their program or something. I don't know. I might cry. <laughs> don't cry. <laughs> Leslie, don't cry. 
So Hans remains the most popular suspect in this case for the next 44 years until something rather odd happens. Investigators decide to reopen the case because of all of the advances in DNA analysis that had occurred. They thought the testing could provide the missing link in this case, and maybe it would have if they were a little better at it, and they were eager to solve it. Investigators claimed that more advanced technology had uncovered new blood evidence found on a pair of shoes, and that this new DNA analysis led to the arrest of a surprising suspect, the lone survivor, Nils Gustafson. So, Leslie, before we move on, why don't you give give us a little rundown on DNA evidence before we move forward? Sure. So, DNA evidence can be collected from blood, hair, skin cells, and other bodily substances, it can even be used to solve old crimes, as we're talking today, mm-hmm. that occurred prior to the development of DNA testing technology. Similar to fingerprints, each individual has a unique DNA profile, except for identical twins who share the same genetic code. But unlike fingerprints, only a minuscule amount of genetic material is needed to identify a suspect. The science of DNA testing was developed in 1985 by British scientist Alec Jeffries, and a year later, it was put it put to the test in England where they were able to link a suspect to a double homicide murder and several unsolved rapes and murders in that area. Interesting. And then DNA has since been has since become the gold standard in identifying criminal suspects as well as victims. The FBI has a large database where they collect DNA samples from all people convicted from a federal offense. And DNA has also been collected from suspects who have yet to be convicted of a crime and from detained immigrants. DNA evidence is analyzed using the polymerase chain reaction, PCR, method. I apologize if I really butchered that word. I'm sure I butchered a lot of Finnish names today. Uh, Which allows for very small samples to be tested and identified. And once the sample is tested, it may be cross-referenced with DNA profiles already in a database or with genetic data provided by a suspect. DNA evidence is not completely foolproof, though it is more than 99% accurate, so that's pretty good. There is only one in one billion chance DNA will match two individuals. And really, only identical twins have, like, the same DNA, as I said before. So typically, errors in testing are the results of mix-ups in the lab or contamination of samples. Each state has a specific rules for DNA sample collection and handling, and courts might not allow the use of genetic evidence in court if these requirements are not met, as what should have been the case for Amanda Knox. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) All of that was, like, fully contaminated oh evidence at that point. Oh, my God. It was so contaminated. Yeah. So DNA evidence can also be used to exonerate wrongfully accused individuals. According to the Innocence Project, more than 250 people have been exonerated through post-conviction DNA tests. Wow. DNA can be used to determine paternity and child support cases, to identify the remains of crime and accident victims, and to conduct gene- genealogical research. And then here are some fun facts about DNA evidence. We love a fun fact. You leave a trail behind you everywhere you go. The trail is made up of hairs, cells, and body fluids. So Gross. Everywhere. Everyone is disgusting. Yep. DNA profiling has proven that an unusual bear shot in Canada's northwest was actually a cross between a grizzly bear and a polar bear. <gasps> That's cool to find out. A growler bear. A growler bear. <laughs> yeah. The first criminal fingerprint identification was made in 1892 by Juan 
Vucetich, V-U-C-E-T-I-C-H, and it proved that a mother had killed her sons. Ooh. Yep. Rough. Luminol is used at crime scenes to detect small amounts of blood. It reacts with iron and hemoglobin and emits a blue light, which is kind of pretty. Uh, yes. It is pretty, it but is it looks like kind of like a black lady situation. Yeah. DNA profiling was used to identify the bodies of Russian royal family who were murdered during the Russian Revolution in 1917. The Romanovs? Yeah. Probably. That's Anastasia. Yeah. Yep. We will cover that, I promise you, you guys. People love that story. DNA is often found on half-eaten snacks or drinks cans, <laughs> on drink cans that are left behind at a house. Oh my God. Drink cans. Hold on. <laughs> What that's supposed to say is like like burglars will leave stuff behind. Isn't okay. that isn't that how they ultimately caught the Golden State Killer? Was like a can that he had had oh, a drink out of. If it isn't the Golden State know. Killer, it's somebody somebody along those same lines. I do, I don't have all like my research in the world in front of me right now, but yeah. some big time killer. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was him, the Golden State Killer. But it that was like a, a water bottle or something out of the trash that oh, had wow. his DNA on, wow. on it. Um, the common house mouse appears all over the world. House however, science yeah. <laughs> however, scientists can tell where the mouse came from by the pollen call in its fur. So that's all through DNA mm. testing. Mm. And then by entering a crime scene just after a shooting, you can be covered with more gunshot residue than a shooter who runs away immediately. Interesting. Yeah. So mm. those were just some fun facts about DNA evidence. I love a fun fact. Well, in late March of 2004, Nils, who had never been considered a suspect before, was arrested for the murders of his three friends. In early 2005, the Finnish National Bureau of Investigation declared the case was solved based on new forensic analysis. Little, little bold. Ooh, I like, so they're also the FBI, right? The, the, I, yeah, no, FNBI. Oh, okay. All right, Finnish National. They probably couldn't. They're, they're like, ah, the U.S. took yeah. it. They're just like, we have the rights. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's like trademarked, the yeah. FBI. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Nobody else can have those cool shirts and hats. They're ours. Yeah. <laughs> I like to think it was based solely on like merchandise. Oh, for sure. Great. <laughs> so it turned out that the shoes Nils had worn during the attack, you remember the ones that were discovered in the woods 500 meters away from the crime scene, had been tested and revealed to have been stained with the blood of the three murder victims, but not any of his own blood. Mm-hmm. The prosecution said that it follows from the lack of Nils's blood on his shoes that his injuries must have occurred at a different time than the attack on the other victims, a time at which he would have been shoeless. This starkly contrasts with his report, being that he was the first one attacked. Though, from there, the rest of the prosecution's assumptions are a real reach, in my opinion. They presented the possibility that Nils was intoxicated and became jealous about something that had happened with his girlfriend. They never identify the event. They never explore. They never talk to their friends and see if they had problems. They just speculate. They're like, he was definitely mad at her for being a cheater. Hmm. Why would you, where did that come from? You just decided that was, all right, fine. And this caused him to attack her and end up killing her in a rage. After this incident, he had no choice but to kill the other two as they were witnesses to the crime. And then he threw his shoes in the woods, beat the shit out of himself, 
and then went back to the tent and laid down in the carnage, pretending to be unconscious until he was discovered. That sounds right. (laughs) Okay. If you can injure the back of your own head so extensively that spinal fluid leaks out of your nose, I'd like to see how you made it happen. Willfully exhibiting that kind of force against yourself is, like, nearly impossible. And without... For instance, like, obviously you could, like, if he just hit his head all the way back on the rock. but where? But then the rock wasn't there. Mm -mm. Like, he would have had to have knocked himself out from that blow. Uh, For sure. Oh, my God, yes. And plus, like, if he did knock his head against something, like a tree or something, that would would be so difficult to Mm -hmm. exhibit that kind of force just from your own neck or your own hand. But if he managed to do it, there'd be evidence all over a tree somewhere. Oh, right. He would have had to, yeah, and all all the evidence was gone. There wasn't... Yeah. Not all the evidence, obviously. But, like, that would have been a bloody mess somewhere. Yeah. You don't, like, give yourself a massive head injury and then leave nothing behind. Yeah. But I see what I see your point about them destroying the evidence. Still, there's so many holes in this to me, it, it feels ridiculous. The trial started on August 4th, 2005. Nell's defense lawyer argued that the murders were the work of one or more outside forces, and that Nils would have been completely incapable of killing three people given the, given the extent of his injuries. Mm-hmm. Though this, this argument is, I mean, it kind of doesn't play into what the prosecution said because they were like, well, he wasn't injured when he committed these murders. But again, still. The prosecution limped along claiming that Nils had also, also had blonde hair, which, I mean, it doesn't really. And, and it certainly isn't long, but they said that because of this, he could have been the man the bird watchers identified. Walking mm-hmm. around outside the tent after killing people. And also, they said that a decade after the event, he had boasted to a woman that he was guilty. A, one woman told you that this guy told her that he murdered people, and you were like, those are facts. Right. That's weird. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also told you 44 years later, where was this woman when the crimes occurred? Yeah, this is weird. Or not 44, a decade later. So I'm sorry, 34 years later. Still, why didn't she come forward right away? Mm-hmm. This is like a huge national crime in Finland. If you knew who did it, why wouldn't you be like, oh man, I am going to be a hero. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe she's just a simple woman that lives a simple life and didn't want to be bothered. And was totally fine with murder. Yeah, maybe she just okay. didn't want to ruin her, I don't know, her little happy home. Maybe not. On October 7th of 2005, Nils Gustafsson was acquitted of all charges, thankfully, because I think this case is kind of absurd Mm -hmm. against him, the court explained that the prosecution had failed to provide conclusive evidence and did not show any motive that would have fit the crime. The state of Finland paid him 44,900 of their dollars. (laughs) I don't know what it's called, and the symbol is stumping me right now. I'm so sorry, you guys, but of their money, for the mental suffering caused by the long remand time. But he was refused permission to sue Finnish newspapers for defamation. Okay. And the case remains open to this day. Hmm. Motive is a problem in a lot of these cases because Hans ass man had no motive either. He was like, I'm just going to kill these kids. Yeah. Well, he was an angry individual. He had like a history of being a bad guy. Yeah. But like not a lot of like big unmotivated killings. I don't know. But also the KGB was blamed for Dyatlov Pass. They were like, they were doing secret experiments. They were hunting down kids. It was this thing. It was that. They, yeah. That was a lot back then. Although, I mean, I guess it could just be Carl. Like his I wife. think it's Carl. Yeah. That seems to make the most sense. But especially if his wife was just like, I was so scared. Yeah. Like later on her deathbed. 
Yeah. His <laughs> wife said on her deathbed. And the thing is, like, initially the police didn't want to take him seriously. They were like, this is just a guy that you don't like. We don't even want to spend, because they didn't want to spend time on anything, apparently. And they only talked to his wife. Yeah. They didn't, like, corroborate it with anyone. They weren't like, oh, your alibi is that this, when did he go home? What did he do that day? Who saw him out at a different time? Mm. Where was he afterwards? Like, no, nobody, none of that. They just were like, you said so. Good, facts. Yeah. I walk away now. He seems the most unhinged and the most likely to just, like, run up on the hill and kill some people. Yeah. I Yeah, I would assume it was, that seems like the most likely. Yeah, in my opinion, and I, it's not a popular one, most people really want to stick with ass man. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, the only reason I would say it, it I feel like it should be Carl because his wife, on her deathbed, like, why? I don't why know. Why would she, you know what I mean? Like, why would she just? Throw that out there before she Notorious died. for hating tourists. Right. He was, like, known for making their lives miserable. And then he killed himself. Uh, in Lake Bodum. Yeah. I know. To me, that says, like, that's your guy. Um, there was also a prisoner at one point who confessed to it, but then they found out that he he had, like, not an alibi, but, like, he was proven to be in a different place at that time. Yeah. He was just like, I did it. I would love to be in the news. And then, like. You know, people do that all the time. Right. Also, to tie into my opening ghost story, ever since this event occurred, partially tied to the fact nope. that Nils said— I know. It's not their ghost. Don't worry. Okay. Partially tied to the fact that Nils said the person that broke into the tent and murdered them had red eyes. Uh, Parents have told their children that if they go up alone, like— you know, they don't listen or follow directions or whatever on Lake Bodum, the Lake Bodum Phantom will find them. Ew, that is horrible of parents to do. It is. <laughs> they were so like, terrifying. you sneak out, the Lake Bodum Phantom is going to kill you with a rock and a knife. Oh, my like, God. I understand, like, a camp counselor, like a teenager telling no, you that story. The article like, I read said parents use parents, it. Parents, that's horrible. I mean, it's not great. No. But it's a camp ghost, so it does tie into my opening a little bit. Oof. I know. Wow. All right. My cat is like eating in the background and there's also someone on my stairs. So it feels like there's ghosts everywhere. I know. That's fun. Okay. So I think that's it. That's like Bodum. That's wow, our that was interesting. I knew nothing of that story. Yeah. It's that a, was a good one. It's a weird one. A lot of people, um, it's told a lot of times in conjunction with Dyatlov Pass. People feel like it's similar because mm. it's like a group of campers in a similar area in a tent. And they die weirdly, and they never find out who did it. Right. So, I think the Outlaw Pass is way weirder, though. Yeah. Well, so then I guess we could also assume that it could be Bigfoot, or like a Yeti, right? Sure. Um. What else? What else did they have going on in there? An avalanche. Came it was through. a summer avalanche. It <laughs> yeah. was very bizarre. It was that sonic wind yeah. that drove oh, someone the crazy. Son- Ooh, the sonic wind. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. It could. It could be any of these things. Could be those people that <laughs> what was it the the uh, sleeping bag that they like <laughs> what the semen on the sleeping bag oh on the pillowcase the pillowcase they never ever went back and were like I'm confused we, where was that specifically it was like in the campsite oh, it was in the campsite but not like in their tent. it wasn't in the tent it was like by where they were murdered it just feels like evidence it feels like. One of them had sex and like wiped themselves off. Two of them. Two though. of the, two of them had sex, but it wasn't their sperm. 
But they, but like you said, it could have. I mean, like maybe that was flawed because they could only figure out blood type type stuff. Yeah. But they said they were cleared of it. They're like, oh, it was too. And the other speculation with that was they're like, well, it was two unknown assailants. They never found out whose it was. That could have been the people who committed this crime, and you just never tried to find them. Yeah. Because you were like, well, it wasn't these two guys, so we're gonna throw it away. Yeah. Find out who it was, and maybe that'll take you in a different direction. Maybe it was Ass Man. Maybe Ass Man was just jizzing all over pillowcases. We don't know. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Was the Yeti. <laughs> Yetis are so gross. <laughs> <laughs> also, that last sentence was one I never thought I'd say. But I did. You did it. <laughs> there you go. All right. Toast? Toast. So to all the victims. Yes. Especially poor Nils, who I truly don't think did it. No, that seems, no, I don't think so. It feels nuts. If he had his shoes on in the tent and everyone was being beaten to death around him and their blood was on his shoes and his wasn't, that doesn't feel so super weird to me that it's impossible. Right. Whatever. Anybody else? Sue? Sue. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know that that's her name, just it's to not, clarify it's, again, I, to my in case knowledge, you forgot. Yeah. No name in this story was as simple as Sue. There yeah. was no way it was that. Yeah. And then we also have some patrons. Oh, so wait, let's clink for the, okay. our story first. Uh, also, before we get to our patrons, our photo shoot this past week was completely comprised of listeners. It was really cool. It was really nice to be supported by some awesome people, so I would like to toast our participants from the day, Jill, John, who went in the pool with his shoes on, yes. his sneakers, and we are so grateful for him. And I promised him I would mention that. And yeah. I always make good on my promises. Ryan, Rachel, Sam, Andrew, those are all our, I believe, our photo participants. And another one goes out to our pal, John Radicasa, who provided all of the blood John. John, blood and inspiration and help. John was amazing that day. To our friend Justin Walsh, who took the pictures. Justin is always great. Cheers to Justin. And um, can't wait to show you guys what we did. And um, it made me feel real creative, and I'm hoping some other stuff comes out of it. I'm not going to say anything, but, like, you never know. I'm excited. Yeah. Could be more camp stuff in our future. Patrons! Yes. We have two patrons this week. Yes, I love two patrons. We have... Laura Robbins. Yes. Come on down. (laughs) And And Amber Morrow? Yes. Yes. Amber Amber Morrow. (laughs) Cheers, patrons. We love you. Thank you for supporting us. We love you. Ooh, we love you creepy style. (laughs) I'm going to say that all the time now. I love you creepy style. It's gross love up in here. Gross love. Yes. Bringing it back to the very beginning. Very. Oh, man. And if you didn't get that, you got to go back and listen to our whole catalog. Mm. Get back to Carl Tanzler. That's something to do. Yeah. Are you bored? Go listen to more of us. Yeah. We're a delight. And if we were to sleep in the woods with only a thin layer of canvas separating us from a forest filled with people capable of murder, we we would be dead. Boy, would we. We'd be the deadest. So dead. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm a little dead just thinking about it. I'm like, deader than dead. (laughs) I was dead yesterday. Oh, no. You knew it was coming and you just died in advance. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to anticipate it. Die. Flat on the floor. Done. Perfect. (laughs) 
I'm a ghost now. I'm a stop it. <laughs> you're a ghost. Ooh. Ooh. I'm cold. No, you're cold. <laughs> I'm cold. <laughs> anyway, bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I will never snot again. Nope.